Well, friends, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to um, the book of Daniel chapter 2. Uh, as you're turning there, Daniel chapter 2, if you're joining us for the first time or you haven't been with us in a while, we're in a series in the book of Daniel that we're calling uh, Faithfulness in a Foreign Land. Uh, and essentially, we're in the book of Daniel because it gives to us a really helpful picture of what it means to live faithfully uh, here in this world when we are ultimately destined toward another world, another home, so to speak. And the real question we're, we're trying to answer is, is, how do you live faithfully in this, um, as Christ followers in this world when we are destined for another? And so with that, although we just were standing, would you stand again uh, as your act of worship? Uh, we stand as our act of worship to receive God's holy word in reverence and in thankfulness to him. We're reading Daniel chapter 2. We're going to be reading verses 1 to 23 and then skipping down to verse 36 to 40. So friends, hear now the reading of God's holy word. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. And then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word for me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The, king, the thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. 
Verse 36. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. And would you join me in prayer once more? Uh, Father, we're thankful again that uh, you give to us this word. And we know it's long, um, but... We remember the ways that you speak to us. You speak to us through poetry and through wisdom. You speak to us through gospels and through narratives. And uh, Lord, we're thankful for this particular story. And we pray that by your spirit, we would understand uh, what it's trying to communicate, what you are trying to tell us. And that with listening ears, Lord, we would hear. And with believing hearts, we would receive. And Lord, with weary souls, we would be comforted. So bless us, Lord, as you speak to us today. We pray and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I normally do, I had a whole introduction written and ready for this sermon. I had written it many times, edited it, tried to make it as good as possible. And then yesterday morning, something happened, the strangest thing happened, and I had to rewrite this entire introduction. Um, So what happened? Well... I woke up in panic at 5 a.m. yesterday morning uh, because I had this very strange dream. Uh, For some reason, I was a place in between China and western Pennsylvania. Um, I was kind of in both places at once. And uh, in my dream, I was away doing some speaking. I was invited to a church to speak. They put me up in a hotel. But for some reason, the way my dream kind of started is I woke up and I had been sleeping in my car in the parking lot of the hotel where I was supposed to be staying. So I was really tired, didn't feel so good. Um, Then I accidentally, I don't, you know, dreams sometimes they don't make sense. I put my car into neutral, it started gliding backwards, and I backed up and I kind of, you know, did a fender bender with a car behind me. Then I got out of my car to see the damage, and uh, although I thought it would be a light scratch, the whole entire bumper of the other car was, uh, had fallen off. Uh, And I thought, oh my goodness, how fast was I going? And then I looked at my car, and my car was totaled. Um, it was completely demolished. Uh, all four wheels had fallen off. Uh, the roof was gone. All four doors had fallen off. And all that was left was uh, the frame of the car. Um, and in the midst of that, I look at my phone, I check the time, and I realize I have three hours to get to this church where I have to preach. And I started panicking. Um, now, I'm a very lucid dreamer, um, and so I felt myself getting very anxious, very stressed out. And so I told myself in this dream, all right, Andrew, that's enough. Why don't you wake up now? Just be done with the dream. And I can do that. And so I woke up, and my mind was racing, and my heart was pounding. And the very first thought that came to me was, I'm just like Nebuchadnezzar. 
because if you remember what we just read in this story, this is exactly his experience. And, and I couldn't help but think, did God send me this dream because he didn't like my introduction and wanted to give me a better one? Um, so Nebuchadnezzar in this story has an experience just like that where he wakes up in panic and he can't sleep because of this dream that makes no sense at all. And in his dream, there's a statue that's absolutely uh, crushed and demolished. Just like in my dream, my car was actually absolutely crushed and, and demolished. And, um, you know, I just bring that up because this story today, you know, it, it, there's, there's so many different things going on. But one thing I want to focus on uh, is really this, this topic of anxiety. The way that anxiety shows up in our lives, uh, the way that anxieties and fears uh, often come into our lives and they take control and they take over the driver's seat. And the question for us as Christians is really this, what do you, what do, you do with your anxieties? Right, what do you do? Because anxieties are often like warning lights on a car. They come up on your dashboard. Now, I'm not sure what you do. If you're like me, what you do is you just go home, you go to sleep, and you hope the next day the light disappears. Some of us deal with anxieties like that. They appear in our lives. They're alerting us to something, but we just ignore them. And we hope they go away. Or do you take those very anxieties to the mechanic of your soul? And you ask him to diagnose you and you ask him to help you. So as we look at this story today, here's the gospel truth, the one sentence summary of our sermon. The anxieties of your heart are not too big for the God of heaven. The anxieties of your heart that you battle, that you wrestle with, they are not too big for the God of heaven. And so as we look at this passage, we're going to consider three things, three headings, uh, the cause of anxiety, the truth it reveals, and the God of heaven. So the cause of our anxiety, the truth that that anxiety reveals, and then the God of heaven. And so here's the first thing, the cause of anxiety. Now, when we started this chapter, it starts actually rather abruptly because it changes scene so radically from chapter one. If you remember, in chapter one, Daniel and his three friends, they're living in uh, the royal courts of Babylon. They're living faithfully as exiles before Nebuchadnezzar. And then chapter two begins, and all of a sudden we're in his bedroom. We're in the bedroom of the king of Babylon, and we see him kind of tossing and turning in the middle of the night, and we see this grown man losing sleep. And so what's going on? Well, verse one says, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. It's interesting because you have to wonder, why does the author choose to bring that to the forefront of our attention? Why does he feel like we need to know this information right away? And I think it's because it highlights the very humanity of this great, the supposed great king. Because, because as a reader, you know, one of the first questions you're asking is, what would cause uh, this king, by the way, he had the largest empire the world had ever known, what is causing a man with this kind of power and influence to have a sleepless night? Right, he, he's a man who, if someone angers him, he speaks a word and they're thrown into fire. If someone doesn't do what he says, he speaks another word and they're cast into dens of lions. Right. Nebuchadnezzar had unchallenged, unmatched power, status, influence, riches, respect, honor, and glory. And yet, all of his dominion, all of his authority, it could not help him get a good night's sleep. Nothing he had in great abundance was able to set him free from the fears and anxieties that unsettled his heart. And already there, that tells us something very important because it speaks into our lives. Like, have you ever found yourself saying something like, you know, if I just had a little bit more of whatever, if I just knew with a little more certainty, 
if I could just secure this a little more, then everything would be okay. Then I would have peace. Then I would be at ease. Then the stress would go away. Then I wouldn't have to worry. And I know I rehearse that lie to myself all the time, and I know you do too. If I just had more, then everything would be okay. But Nebuchadnezzar's story is ex- it's exposing. That's not actually true, is it? You know, we want to believe uh, that having greater security or more certainty in this life will expel the troubles and quell the fears of our lives. But that's simply not true because, in fact, the very opposite happens. Often having more and investing more in this world increases our fears and our anxieties, not lessens it. You know, I remember just feeling this myself. Have you ever bought a new car? Right, buying a new car, it's a great feeling. You're boasting with pride in this vehicle you have. And so you buy a new car, you take it off the lot. Well, let's say you need to go um, you know, shopping. And so you pull into a parking lot and you're driving your brand new car. Where do you park the car? Or do you park it up front near the entrance in the tight spaces of the, you know, the scene of, of, of a shopping mar- you know, mall is usually like, kind of like a post-apocalyptic scene of like uh, shopping carts gone rogue and they're just kind of all over the place. I mean, do you like navigate your way through there? Obviously you don't because you'll just have more anxieties that your car will get hit. So you park far away, right? Far from the danger zone. And then you go in and you shop, and when you come out, and let's say you see your car because you park so far away, but you notice that there's all this empty space, but somebody, of course, there's always that one person who just parks right next to you. Uh, and you're thinking, why there? Super close, and as you're walking, you're angry, you're frustrated, and there's a little bit of nervousness because uh, if you're paranoid like me, you're scared that someone, you know, uh, uncarefully will open up, you know, their car too widely, and it'll hit your car and dent your car. And so all of a sudden, you know, you have this nice new car, but you're plagued by even even greater anxieties than that old beat-up car you used to drive that, you know, someone could smash it with a hammer and you'd be okay with it. Nebuchadnezzar, you look at his life, this guy should be stress-free, right? He, he had the whole kingdom. He had everything you could possibly ask for. He was never in need, never in want. And yet, the very opposite is true. Because his kingdom was so expansive, because he had so much, This created anxieties in his heart that he never had before. All of his earthly riches didn't protect him from his anxieties. They merely plagued him with more anxieties. Now, why do I say that? How do we know that to be true? Well, let's look at the dream. So this is what happens in the story. It was a long text. I was reading a little fast, so let me just summarize again. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. He doesn't know what this dream means. And so uh, he calls his people, the diviners, enchanters, sorcerers, to tell him his dream. But he doesn't just say, hey, interpret it for me. He says, you know what? I don't trust you. I don't trust. I, I, I think I'm scared you're just going to say what I want to hear. And so don't just tell me uh, the interpretation of the dream. Tell me what the dream is. And so nobody can do it. They all say, this is impossible. How can any of us do it? Except there's one man who can, right? Daniel. And so in verses 31 to 35, Daniel tells him his dream. And he says, the dream is, okay, you have this mighty image. um, And in the mighty image, there's a head of gold. And he says, oh, that head of gold represents you, uh, O king. And then the rest of the image um, has different parts made up of various material. And basically, each of those materials represents a different king, or a different kingdom. And so after Babylon would come Persia, Media Persia. After Media Persia would come Greece. After Greece would come Rome. But at the very end, what we see is that the statue is struck, and then it crumbles. The whole thing falls apart. 
So that's the dream. And then Daniel says, all right, well, I've told you the dream. Now let me interpret it for you. And he says, okay, that head of gold, that's you. And all of these other kingdoms will arise after you. And there will be this fourth kingdom that will crush every kingdom that comes before it. And then if you read on, he says, and then there will be a stone that comes out and it will crush all of those other kingdoms. And basically what Daniel is doing is he's prophesying historically what's going to happen, which is that the next kingdom will arise and Nebuchadnezzar, you'll be a nobody. And then the kingdom of Persia will arise and then the next kingdom will take over that and there'll be a nobody and so on and so forth. So Nebuchadnezzar, he has his dream. He doesn't understand its interpretation, but uh, he has a sense of it. That's why his stomach is kind of churning. He feels it in his gut. Like, this is not a good dream. It has a lot of ominous tones over it. So he's losing sleep. And his fears, the fears of his heart are being pricked at. And the reason is because Nebuchadnezzar is coming face to face with this reality. That his kingdom, no matter how great and expansive it was, is still finite and frail. This dream meant for Nebuchadnezzar that everything that he looked at to validate him as a king, everything that gave him a sense of greatness, everything that was evidence that he was a somebody, he comes to the realization that one day all of that can be taken away. That amassing more and more for himself wouldn't actually protect him, it would only plague him. And the truth is actually, the same thing is true of us. You know, the problem with having and placing our hopes and our dreams and our security on anything uh, belonging to this world is that it will be vulnerable. You see, the the deep anxieties and fears of Nebuchadnezzar's heart, uh, they were stirred because they were threatened, they were exposed, they were open. He had a kingdom that could be taken over. He had a kingdom that could be conquered, a kingdom that could be demolished. And in the same way, if we put our hopes and our fears and our trust and our security and our identity in anything of this world, we're always under constant threat that that can be taken away from us. And it will cause us to live in fear and anxiety. I may have shared this illustration before, but, but once I was preparing to lead a short-term trip overseas on missions, and uh, right before the trip, one of the church deacons called me aside and uh, gave me uh, an, a substantial amount of cash uh, in an envelope because that was the way that you, know, you had to um, you know, pay for things in that country. And I did my very best to distribute as much of it you know, as possible to other responsible members, but you know, in the end, I was the leader. I still had to carry the bulk of it, uh, and I definitely couldn't leave it in the hotel room not trusting you know what would happen and so I would always carried it uh, with me but let me just tell you like the absolute paranoia that accompanies you when you're walking down the streets of a third world country with thousands of dollars of cash on your persons right because every time somebody uh, walked by me and brushed by me right every time somebody so much as, as breathed on my neck right I will do a full TSA pat down on myself to make sure all the money was still there and nothing was stolen Every startling sound, every quick action, movement past me filled me with anxiety. Because why? Because everything that I needed to eat and sleep and travel was on me, not just me, but for the team. And so because that money was out there, it was was vulnerable, it was always um, under threat, and so I was always anxious. And it was a terrible way to, to, to live the day, to go about the day always on high alert. But that's actually how many of us live. We have these anxieties, and because they're placing things in this world, we're always under this kind of pressure, this worry, this fear that something can be taken from us. 
You have to wonder, though, would I have felt the same way if that money was safely deposited away in a bank or in a safe back in the, country, in the U.S.? Or would I be plagued by the same kind of anxieties? And the answer is absolutely not. But I, could, I would have no problem walking through crowded streets and markets and bumping into people and walking through large crowds. I would even give strangers hugs. It would be okay. I would risk losing nothing. Because what I was banking in was not open to threat and being taken and stolen. You see, here's the point. If, like Nebuchadnezzar, everything that you desire and you love and you hope in, uh, everything that you're trying to get for identity and significance and security, if that's tied to something in this world, if it's tied to something in the city of man, you will live. I'm telling you now, you will live, or you are living in great fear and great anxiety. This is because anything that's placed in this world can be stolen, it can be taken away from you, it can be lost, it can be forfeited, it can be broken. If you're investing your life, finding your dreams, searching for your deepest desires in something found in the kingdom of this world, a kingdom that can be shaken, a kingdom that can be threatened, you will always live in a fear of the unknown. Anxiety will always riddle you. Fear will always be that friend that you really don't want to have, but is always by your side. Now, what anxieties and fears do you have right now in your life? What is keeping you up at night? What's robbing you of sleep and deep rest? What things run through your mind all day and occupy your thoughts constantly? What uneasiness of the unknown future plagues you? What are those sources of uncertainty and seeds of doubt? And perhaps that indicates that you're trusting and hoping and depending on looking for meaning and validation in something of this world or someone in this world. And deep down inside, you know that this something, this someone is just as frail, just as fragile, just as finite as Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. Anything that holds your hope and your desires and your dreams that's of this world is not safe. So that's the first thing, the cause of our anxieties. We're placing too much hope in these kinds of things. But secondly, what truth does it reveal? Because it reveals something very important. Yeah, anxiety reveals uh, something important about ourselves, and, and you gotta get ready for this, right? It's very important. Your anxiety reveals that you are not God. Now, I don't think, I hope none of you here are like, oh my gosh, I've never heard that before. It's not a surprising truth, it's not a shocking truth, but it is a sobering truth. It's one that if you really think about, I am not God, it begins to free you. See, the reality is this, all of us here, um, we're anxious, because we want to be like God, meaning, meaning two things. We want to know our futures, we want to know what's up ahead, and we want to control our futures. We want to control what's gonna come up ahead. Right? We want certainty, we want security. And we can't guarantee that for ourselves, and as a result of that, we are anxious, we're filled with fear and worry. 
Right, look at the story again. So Nebuchadnezzar, he demands uh, not only the interpretation, but the revelation of the dream itself. And it's an impossible task. And they're saying, Nebuchadnezzar, please, can you change your mind? And he's saying, no, my word is firm. And then they say this to him. Look, if you have your Bible open, look with me at verses 10 and 11. This is what they say. They say, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. And this is when one of the, the, the king's nerves are touched. His nerve is pinched badly because they say this to him. And then verse 12, he says, it says, because of this, the king was very angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. And it's like his reaction is a little bit out of proportion, right? Tell me not only the interpretation, read my mind, tell me the dream. And they're saying, we can't do it. And then he's saying, okay, then you're going to die and all the people like you and all your families are going to die. Hey, this guy, he needs to go to anger management class. Um, he just, he blows up. And some of you are like, that's my husband. <laughs> this guy, what is triggering him? And it's really interesting because if you look at verse 12, it starts like this. It says, because of this, the king was angry and very fierce. Something triggered him. What triggered him? What is this? If you look back at what is this referring to, you look at verse 11 and it ends like this. No one can show it to the king except the gods. And when they say that, it tells something to Nebuchadnezzar, it reminds him of something he doesn't want to hear. Because when the wise men say, no one can show it to the king except the gods, they're really saying two things. On the one hand, they're saying, obviously what they're saying, they're saying, we're not gods, we're only men, we can't tell you the dream, we can't interpret the dreams, we're not gods. But by saying something about themselves, they're saying something about Nebuchadnezzar as well. Because when you make a personal comment, sometimes you're actually saying a much more condemning word to the person next to you. So here's an example. Uh, two weeks ago, we had our Thanksgiving potluck and um, the spread. It was amazing. I, I, I love it. This is when you say, you know, the young people say like, hashtag blessed. Our Thanksgiving potluck, so blessed. But in particular... The dessert table, hashtag double blessed, was a gift from God. Particularly this dish, I can single her out. Anne made this wonderful dish. I'm hoping she'll make it again. Uh, <laughs> it's chocolate pecan pie. And I remember uh, I was just eyeing the table downstairs, and I was, really, I was just kind of looking at it, and I was deeply contemplating and, and considering how much should I eat? <laughs> And I guess somebody saw me just kind of looking at it, and they came up to me, and they said, they said to me, yeah, I'm trying to stay away from it, too. I've gained so much weight. And I'm looking at them, I'm like, where? They're like, you're the skinniest person in the church. And that comment, right, thinking, oh, I should stay away. I, you know, I've gained too much weight. And I'm thinking, well, if you need to cut back from, you know, dessert, then I should come back, cut back from dinner. <laughs> yeah, I shouldn't even eat. And, and, and this person didn't realize it, said it in just, you know, just innocence. But their personal comment about themselves speaks a condemning word about me. <laughs> oh, if you think you should cut back from dessert and you shouldn't eat it, and I'm thinking, man, how much should I eat? <laughs> that makes me feel so much more self-conscious. You know, the magicians, the enchanters, the wise men, they're saying, oh, we're just men. You know, only gods can tell us a dream. We don't know the dream because we're not gods. And what they're confronting Nebuchadnezzar with is this truth that he hates to hear, which is this. Nebuchadnezzar, you are not God either. 
their words sting him. They strike a deep chord in him because Nebuchadnezzar, his whole life, people were bowing down to him. People were calling him God. They were worshiping him in the ways they addressed him, in the ways they respected and honored him, in the ways that he could erect a statue and thousands of people could bow down. And despite hearing all of that, in that moment, he is reminded that he is not God, only human. At the end of the day, our anxieties reveal this humbling truth. We are not God. And we feel anxious because we're not God. We feel anxious because we don't know the future. We feel anxious because we can't control the future. You know, consider the things that you're anxious about. And then just ask this question, how many of those things are in the future? How many of your worries and your anxieties and your uncertainties live in the future? They live in tomorrow. They live in next week. They live in next year. And we just think, man, if, if, if you had both omniscience, which is uh, you're all-knowing, and you had omnipotence, meaning um, you're all-powerful. Like, if you had those two attributes, you were all-knowing, you were all-powerful, then imagine how many of your anxieties would go away. But the humbling, sobering reality is we don't have either of those things because we're not God. And so we have plenty of anxieties and fears. What are you anxious about? Perhaps you're anxious about school or work. Will I make this deadline? Will I get an A in this class? Will I have a job next month? Will this paycheck cover the expenses? Perhaps you're anxious about family. Will my parents ever stop fighting? Will I ever be able to forgive mom or dad? Will my child come back to the Lord? Will their future be okay? Will they turn out all right? Perhaps you're anxious about health. What if this pain doesn't go away? What if the doctor gives me a diagnosis I can't bear? What if my loved one doesn't get better or can't get better? Perhaps you're anxious about relationships. Will I ever get married? Is this the right person for me? What if I'm making a big mistake being with them? Will I ever trust my spouse again? You see, we have all of these questions, and all of these questions, the causes of our fear and anxiety is found in the fact that we're not God, and we don't know the future, and we can't control the future. It's a stinging truth, but it's a balm for the soul. And it's stinging because, as the philosopher Nietzsche once said, he said, if there is a God, how can I bear not to be that God? We want to be omniscient. We want to know all things at all times. We want to be omnipotent. We want to be able to do things at all times. And yet the fact is that we can do none of these things at all times. It's a sobering truth, a sobering reminder, but it's a bomb to the soul because by reminding us of that, by reminding you, hey, you're not God, it's telling you, hey, so stop trying to be God. Because when you're freed from that expectation to be and play God, you're freed from that expectation um, to live in a way that you could never live, to perform in a way you could never perform. You see, you have one of two options by being told you're not God. You can be like Nebuchadnezzar, frustrated, angry, offended, and constantly plagued by the unknowns of the world and of the future. Or you can humbly submit to letting God be God. And letting him take that role and responsibility and surrendering to him and letting his peace be in you and his peace to be your peace. 
But the question is this, so if that, those are the two options, why is it better to let God be God? And that leads to this third and last point, the God of heaven. The God of heaven. You see, when no man in the entire kingdom can interpret and tell Nebuchadnezzar the dream, Daniel is able to. But we find out it's not just Daniel, it's Daniel's God. And so in verse 18, Daniel gets his friends together and, he's, and it says this, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. And then God answers, and in verse 9 it says, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night, then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Now, uh, you have to pay very careful attention to this little expression, God of heaven. God of heaven uh, is repeated in the book of Daniel four times, four times and four times only. But all four times that expression, God of heaven, appears only in Daniel chapter 2. Those four times that it appears in the book of Daniel, only in chapter 2, it only appears after verse 10. It appears in verse 18, 19, 37, or 37, and 44. Now, why am I bringing this up? Because it's very important where God of heaven appears. And it appears after verse 10, because it's in verse 10. If you remember what the wise men said to Nebuchadnezzar in verse 10, this is what they said. They're complaining him, Lord, how can we do this? And then they say, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demands. You see, I don't think they quite understand how important and true their statement was, uh, how importantly Nebuchadnezzar needed to hear it, but what they're saying is, there is not a man on earth who can do this. And the author is saying, yeah, you're right, there's not a man on earth who can do this, but there is a God of heaven who can. And the author is telling us, that's who you ultimately need to be looking to. Not any man on earth, but the God of heaven. You know, so God reveals the dream to Daniel, and then Daniel goes on to praise him. And so if you look at verses 20 and 21, let me just read this. It says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. And Daniel begins worshiping the God of heaven. And this passage, this explosion of praise is really important because it's helping us remember we live in a world where God rules and God reigns from heaven. It's reminding us, you're not God, he's God because he's the one who changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and he sets up kingdoms. He raises uh, empires and raises uh, emperors. His is wisdom to give. His is knowledge to impart. And that's so important. That's such a humbling reminder to us because it's helping us remember that the great thrones of all of the earthly kings are but a footstool for God. And when we realize that all the great thrones of the earthly kings are but a footstool for God, that's when our anxieties and fears are able to bend their knees to the true God. And look again at this little verse here. Verse 20 says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. Wisdom and might. Think about that. Wisdom and might. Wisdom and might. I am anxious because I am not all-knowing. So I fear the uncertain future, and it terrifies me. I am anxious because I am not knowing. I am not all-knowing, and I fear the uncertain future. But to God belongs wisdom, which means he knows all things, and he discerns all things that are ultimately good for you. I'm frustrated I'm not like God because I don't know my future. And God's saying, well, 
Luckily for you, I'm a God of wisdom and I know all things and I know what's good and I know what's right. I'm also anxious because I'm not all powerful. So I fear the unknown future and it paralyzes me sometimes because I feel like I can't do anything about it. But the God belongs might, meaning he not only knows all things that are good for you, but he has the power to walk all things out for your ultimate good. See, you and I, we live in a world where we do not sit on the throne, and not sitting on the throne is, frankly, a frightening position. I get scared enough when I'm not sitting in the driver's seat. I'm not sitting on the throne of my life. And it's fearful only until I remember that God is sitting on it. Now, there's a really powerful song. It's a little bit older song by an artist, Christian artist named Stephen Curtis Chapman. Uh, And in the course of the song, it's a beautiful song. He says, it's called God is God. He says, God is God, and I am not. I can only see a part of the picture he's painting. God is God, and you are not. God is God, and you are not. God is God, so he is all-powerful, and you are not. God is God, so he is all-knowing, and you are not which is so important because it means that when your fears and your anxieties seem too big for your heart, they are not too big for God. But herein lies the tension. God is all-knowing, amen. God is all-powerful, amen. But how do I know God is those things for me and not against me? How can I know God wants to take those anxieties from me? Because it's great to affirm these things about God, but if he's not those things for me, then what good is it for me? And the only confidence that that's good news for us comes through the gospel, because the gospel invites you to consider the lengths to which God went to show you that he is for your peace and not for your fears. Look again at verse 11. It's such an important little phrase here, and it says, the words of the wise men are this. They say to Nebuchadnezzar, no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. And when the wise men say that, you know what they're basically saying? They're saying, listen, Nebuchadnezzar, they're saying, only the gods can settle your heart by telling you the dream and its interpretation. But those gods are so far from us, they don't dwell with us in human flesh. Or they're basically saying, sorry, Nebuchadnezzar, we want to help you, but we can't help you. Because the peace that you're looking for by someone telling you the dream, that peace can only be given to you by the gods, and the gods want nothing to do with us. The gospel comes and it challenges that statement. It challenges that belief because the gospel says, you know what? Yes, that should be true. It should be true that the gods care nothing for you. But it's no longer true. You see, we remember in this Advent season, in the season of Christmas, that God actually did come to us. And God came to give us peace. You see, God came to us in his one and only son, Jesus. God could have said, that he could have said, you know what, I should be far from you. Like, all you do is you try to be me, and then you insult me when you try to be me. All you do is try to sit in my throne, take my place, take my credit. All you do is act like you don't need me. And you know what? Okay, then, good luck with all your worries and anxieties. Let's see how far being God gets you in life. And when God should have said that, What God actually said, and what we're told in his word, is not that he is far from us, not dwelling amongst us in human flesh, but we're told that this word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. 
that God would send his son Jesus to us, to be near to us, not far from us, to make his dwelling among us. And when much like Nebuchadnezzar, we only concern ourselves with our own kingdoms, and we care so little for God's kingdom, when we try to be our own kings and we refuse to have him and let him be king, we put ourselves in rebellion against him. You know, it's really interesting. We have all of these fears and worries about the unknown future. Uh, We have a lot of uncertainties about what's coming up. But you know what? The future isn't unknown for you. The Bible makes it very clear that if you don't know Christ, the future is very known. You deserve God's just, just wrath against your sin. You deserve to be abandoned and forsaken. You deserve the full punishment of his holy anger. It's so funny because we are so uh, frightened by the uncertain unknowns or the unknowns of what's to come when we are totally often not frightened about the certain unknowns we know are, or the certain knowns that are to come. And it's into that that God comes and he speaks us, uh, speaks to us and gives us this word because he says, you know what? That is actually your greatest uncertainty. That's your greatest fear, this end awaiting you. But then he comes and he relieves us of that by bringing reconciliation and redemption. So we're actually told in Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And in his death, in your place, Jesus comes and he actually replaces the great fears that you have with greater peace. A peace that comes from Jesus. And by giving you that peace, then he invites you, as it says in 1 Peter 5, 7, to cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. You know, the one who is willing to give up his life for you, how can you question if he is good and if he cares at all? He couldn't show it in any clearer way. And so my exhortation, Cornerstone, is this. Would you learn today that, that sure, your troubles and your fears, they are too big, they are too great, they are too much for your own heart. But they are not too big, they are not too great, they are not too much for your God. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. When you live by sight in this world, you will feel anxious. In this foreign land, nothing is certain. When you try to be God, when you can't control your future and you don't know your future, it is full of frightening uncertainties. But the gospel reminds you, you don't need to be God. Because God is God. And you are not. And he is good And he invites you to cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And when we doubt that and we lose sight of it, we remember the gospel. Christ, God who came to make his dwelling among us, to bring to us peace. So let us go to him. Let's pray, friends. Father, we're thankful for this story in Daniel which captures for us a man who had the whole kingdom and yet he didn't have peace. Lord, remind us that we could have every luxury of this world, everything that we're hoping after, everything we're looking to find our identity and significance in. We could have the American dream, but if we have not the God of heaven, we cannot have peace. Teach us then, Lord, and remind us again how much you love us that you are the God who cares for us so much you would send Christ for us. And then, Lord, teach us not only that truth, but teach us daily how to come to you, 
how to come to you when we are of weary heart, how to come to you when we are of anxious soul. Help us find ourselves daily at the feet of Jesus in the presence of the one who cares for us. In his name we pray. Amen. Friends, especially those of anxious heart, receive the benediction. Now may the grace and the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love and the peace of God the Father and the fellowship and the peace of the Holy Spirit be with you all both now and forevermore. Amen. Receive now the benediction or the dismissal. Let us go forth to serve the world as those who love our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Go in peace, dear friends.